Hi everyone, Tiffany here with a super quick note that this podcast was recorded as part of a previous bundle season. That means that the dates that you're about to hear for the bundle, well, they're no longer correct. If you're interested in seeing what the dates are for this year's sale, please visit thebellydancebundle.com. There you'll find all the up-to-date information on our upcoming bundle. While the dates may be wrong and the class mentioned here isn't available through us any longer, many of our guests still have their courses available for purchase individually, so please do feel free to click through to their offerings and take a look. You're going to want to check it out after hearing how brilliant they are. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello there, Tiffany here with Yala Rocks. Today, I want to preface this episode with something that I think is super important to recognize. Practice doesn't always mean putting your butt on the dance floor. Sometimes the thing that will help your dance the most, the thing that your practice time is best served doing, is actually studying. The study of the culture and history of this dance, of specific aspects of this dance, or even working on some of the other elements of your dance as they relate to greater questions of privilege, business, or community, all of those have a place in your practice. This dance doesn't just have one facet. The dance itself isn't the only part to it. It has many, many, many ways in which you can be a participant. And as long as you're not completely abandoning the dance floor, there is absolutely space and reason to spend time studying. And that's part of what this year's lecture bundle is about. All of these other elements of our dance that are so important to the dance itself. Today's guest, Don Devine, will be giving a lecture as part of this year's bundle called Mad About Mod, Salamania and the Birth of Bedla. And I could tell that if you were looking at this podcast as purely something to help you design a personal practice, you might be wondering where this fits in. So I wanted to add this little disclaimer here at the beginning. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Salome, here is some relevant backstory to kind of set the scene for you. Salome lived during the first century of the Common Era and was the stepdaughter of Herod, the ruler appointed by Rome to a region in Palestine. In biblical literature, she's mostly remembered from her dance at the birthday celebration of Herod, and he had John the Baptist beheaded at her request. So she's really become a face of the archetypal femme fatale through this story and the other things she got up to throughout her lifetime. She's inspired a lot of art, literature, and music over the centuries, including a play that Don references today by Oscar Wilde called Salome in 1891. Now, with that information, let's dive into what Salomania was and how Maud Allen played a part not only in that, but in the creation and inspiration for some of the costuming you see even today. It's time to do a little studying. dancers and welcome to Yala Rocks, the belly dance podcast that helps you design your personal practice. Today we're here with Don Devine. Don, welcome back for your fourth 
here in the bundle and to the yes is the bundle four years old then i'm here for the fourth year you've been with us the whole time i i love i love having return contributors and contributors that have been here the whole time it's like the bundle is here because of you like thank Uh, you so much for your time your energy and for putting all of this stuff online in some form fashion way before the pandemic and the zeitgeist were were in this place yeah, well, thank you for inviting me back as the organizer. It's always a pleasure to be part of the, the, the crew that brings a wonderful product to the belly dance world. And uh, yeah, being going digital and, and having digital classes, you were on the vanguard. And the bundle was part of that um, leading crest of the wave that has crashed upon us, right? Cr- crashed. <laughs> Yes, so let's let's dive in. Your contribution to this year's bundle is uh, you will be in the lecture bundle giving a lecture on Mad About Mod, Salomania, and the Birth of Bedla, which builds off some of the topics we've talked about in the past, which is just yes. so exciting to me. So can you tell us what, let's start with what Salomania is um, uh-huh. so we can kind of get into all of that and then we'll dive into a little bit of who Maud Allen was towards towards the end of our of our interview today. Sounds great. Well, so Salomania was a term that was coined by an unknown journalist back in 1907, late 1907, early 1908. It sort of emerged in uh, the world of journalism to describe this phenomenon, this pop culture phenomenon that was sweeping the major cities of Europe, America, and around the world. And what it was, was this flourishing of Salome dancers. So people dancing in a particular style of costume, not necessarily all to the same music, not necessarily all the same style of dance, but this this desire to have a Salome dancer as part of your your entertainment program in vaudeville, in burlesque, in in music hall, in music theater, in in uh, England, in variety theater, you know, like the Moulin Rouge in in Paris. And so suddenly each one of these venues in every single zone of the world that was embracing um, the, the, you know, the sort of popular arts had to have a Salome dancer. And that meant that at any given time in a major city, you would have two, three, 10, 15 Salomes to choose from. You could go see her at the opera in, in a Strauss opera. You could see her possibly at a theater. If you lived in a country that allowed Oscar Wilde's play to be performed, um, you could see her, an actress playing her, or you could go to a variety um, sort of environment and see one act, just like between the juggler and the ventriloquist, you would see a Salome dancer. And so Salomania was this pop cultural moment in 1908. It's so funny because you don't think of, like, when you think of pop culture, you don't think of something that happened 100 years ago, <laughs> right? Like more than 100 years ago. Like, you, uh-huh. that's not the that's not the time period that the term pop culture tends to bring about, but it, it is absolutely the way it, it's like now with the internet, these things spread so much faster, right? When you have mm-hmm. a global phenomena of everybody all across the world doing a particular dance or style or costuming or challenge or whatever, right? That happens so much more quickly now, mm-hmm. but these things were happening hundreds of years ago in the yep. same, in the same way 
just much mm-hmm. slower and much more widespread. I would think even in like a, in a local fashion, like it wasn't like a flash in the pan right? as much right. as it is now. So it was slower to spread and lasted longer. Yes. Because, you know, right now we, we can have a, you know, like we could pick a pop song or a pop icon and we go, that's pop culture. The song becomes famous. The video becomes famous. Everybody is into it for 20 seconds, three minutes, 10 weeks on the billboard charts. We are moving at a faster rate of communication, but if we dial back to a time before television, well, before the internet, before television, before film, we're now, you know, in the land of theater and newspapers as our main um, communication form. So we're talking about popular theatrical performances in a variety of different, you know, economic levels from opera to burlesque, you know, that whole range. And then the communication happens via newspaper. So everything, you know, it sort of emerged um, in the beginning of the, you know, 20th century. The first Salome was actually Loewe Fuller in, in Paris, the first documented Salome dance. And Loewe Fuller performed even before the Oscar Wilde play ever was performed on stage. She took on the the character of Salome, drawing from the same um, influences that Oscar Wilde wrote his play, right? So Oscar Wilde wrote his play, right? Which is really what contributed to that 1908 flourishing, but Oscar Wilde wrote his play back in the, in the, in the uh, 19th century rather than 20th, while Louis Fuller was performing um, her Salome dance around the same time in the 1890s. So um, it, there was a basically a 10 year warm up from the first Salome dancer until Salomania, you know, um, before it became a, a, a pop, a popular culture phenomenon. But it really, I mean, if we dial back a little bit, it really started with a shift in the zeitgeist, that worldview of Paris, France, and with the poet, the symbolist poet, Mallarmé. I mean, I'm getting super nerdy here. He wrote a poem, he wrote a poem, and then a little later, Flaubert, you know, one of these, we know him in the belly dance world from other things, but Flaubert wrote a, um, wrote a, like a novella called Hariadne, like Herod's wife, right? Uh, Herodia, um, Salome's mom. So he wrote a novella about that, and that inspired Oscar Wilde to write his play. And so Oscar Wilde's play came after these other um, French symbolist, you know, what if we reinvent, reinvent Salome? What if we rethink her? You know, let's do this. And so it was sort of an intellectual game to think about what this character could be like. And so she changed roles, becoming the femme fatale that we read about all the time. Oh, Salome, the femme fatale. Well, that was really invented in Paris between 1850 and 1890 between Mallarmé and Oscar Wilde. And then I continued because Oscar Wilde's play spawned not one but two operas and and those went on to be performed in the 20th century and giving rise to the the Salome dance phenomenon and so how is this so you said that the Salome dancers were not all of one genre right right would Mm -hmm what would we maybe recognize some of these dances as if we saw them through modern eyes? So if we were looking back, 
if we were looking back in time, you know, with our current knowledge, but through the lens of history, what we would see is sort of a fantasy, uh, so you think you can dance, sort of modern dance, interpretive dance. Now we're talking about proto-modern dance. So modern dance really didn't come into its own until the 20s, 30s, 40s. Right, so we're talking proto-modern dance. So we have a lot of expressiveness. They were pulling from the, the teachings of Del Sartre. They were trying to express themselves in ways, looking at Greek pottery, for instance, and Egyptian artifacts, and interpreting these movements in an artistic way, a movement poem, uh, so to speak. They were, they were interpreting this music and doing almost, I would say, like a pantomime where they were telling the story through the actions of their body. And we would look at that today and go, <laughs> most of these women were self-taught. They weren't necessarily the most graceful dancers on the planet. You know, so again, this is about different price points. You know, there were some dancers who were better than others. Um, and, um, and so you have these dancers who would be like sort of modern, orientalist themed, so you think you can dance, ooey gooey. But when I say so you think you can dance, I'm talking about the, you know, the, um, the audition. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The, you know, it's like, oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> so we, we wouldn't see them as belly dancers, mm -hmm. right? They might have a few, um, what we think of as traditional belly dance moves integrated into their dance, but there's no way to know because none of these dancers are on film. Film really wasn't the, the thing um, at the time. And although Maud Allen, who I'm talking about in my, in my talk, did do her Salome dance in a film, the film hasn't survived. So it's a lost, of course it has a lost film. It's a lost film. Damn. So yeah, I know. Yeah. Damn, darn. But, um, but so we really don't know how these dancers were, but some of the dancers who were performing in the opera venues, you know, so Salome, the opera by Strauss had ballet dancers. And so you can imagine that that was, it had a ballet foundation um, because ballet and opera are connected historically and at this time were also connected. Sometimes in these Strauss operas, the opera singer danced and that would be very much more pantomime and very much more interpretive gesture dancing, just gestural dancing rather than um, a more formally trained dancer dancer. There were a few triple threats. I know Akti was one of the triple threats. She she sang, she danced, she acted. And so she was um, considered by Strauss to be his ultimate Salome. But, um, but uh, yeah, so um, as you move down in the sort of the pulp during the pop cultural spread, you know, a dancer would be like, oh, Salome's popular this season. I'm going to make myself a Salome dance. And so she would build on whatever foundational dance she had. Um, most of them were just, you know, you know, jumping around, having a good time, putting on a cute costume and a bunch of makeup and um, yeah, dancing in the dance mode, but rarely. And I, and I say rarely, cause I haven't found any documentation yet, rarely in an actual Oriental or belly dance form that we would recognize today. It almost seems like this, like Orientalism spread before this, right? With the, with travelers going to the Middle East and bringing back, you know, their Western views of mm -hmm. what was going on. But uh -huh. it almost seems like this is like almost a level up of it. Is that like, I'm, here's my dance. I'm going to kind of put this, this trapping on it. 
Yes. And push and it forward. And so one of the one of the things to think about um, is that these Salome dancers were mostly trying to capture a lost history. So they weren't Orientalist dance, uh, Orientalist in the terms of they went, they saw what's currently happening and integrated what was currently happening. Because I think yeah. the Orientalist movement is really about what was happening at the time reinterpreted through the lens of the European observer. Absolutely. Okay? But these dancers were like going ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. So that's all made up that it, 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 it's Orientalist, but it has that, that also that deeper level of interpreting static arts, yeah. the, the wall painting, the Etruscan wall paintings and Egyptian wall paintings and Greek and Roman pottery. So was it taking those static arts and bringing it back to, um, to to a dance art you know so they they made a point of striking poses that reflected those historical antecedents so they were sort of remanufacturing ancient art a little bit different than what we think of when we we think orientalism you know what mm -hmm. i mean yes i can actually see i see what you're talking about here with the difference and i think what you're talking about with with hitting those poses and and, and bringing back these interpretations of static arts like you said explains so many of the um the photos that have come out of this era like the postcards and stuff that you share on mm -hmm. on your facebook and that you've been collecting and putting together for this book that you're writing like that's you can see it in mm -hmm. in this visual documentation of the era yeah yeah and and uh and it was re it it's it's also recorded in the case of Maud Allen. She was a diarist and, and and she wrote her autobiography. So she actually wrote about her intentions to do that, to create this historic moment. And there were dancers contemporary to Maud Allen, say Ruth St. Dennis and um, Isadora Duncan, contemporaries of Maud Allen and the other Salamania dancers who didn't do Salome. Right, so they didn't bring on board the the Salome dance. You know, it was too popular. You know, they're not going to do what everyone else was doing. So they were forging their own path, but doing the same thing, reinterpreting this historic moment through their dance. So um, Isadora Duncan, of course, one of the foundational figures in the modern dance um, form that emerged later. Well, so is Ruth St. Dennis and Maude Allen. So they're part of the same school, um, but they didn't know it. They were competitors in this dance scene, in this sort of um, high-end high variety entertainment dance scene. So they were traveling around, appearing at the best quality variety stages. But unlike uh, Maud Allen, Isadora and St. Dennis, uh, Ruth St. Dennis were not doing Salome, but they're all cut from the same cloth. Very interesting. So you are writing an entire book on Salomania. Yes. Yes, I and, am. And you, <laughs> deep, in, deep in the research for this, you can see, if you could see Dawn's face right now, you would see how deep in the research she is. <laughs> um, but you, we had talked a little bit about before, like why Salomania is important for modern belly dancers to, to know about and to know this portion of history in the dance space. Can you speak a little to that? 
Well, so as you know, and I think most people who are, are listening to me talk know that I, uh, I began my career publishing, publishing books on how to make and design belly dance costumes. My trade is I'm a costumer. I went to fashion design school. I got a bachelor's degree in theater. My trade is um, making costumes. And so my interest is about her costume, not necessarily her dance. And so when we think, oh my gosh, so she was a, a, one of the mothers of modern dance as far as movement is concerned. As far as costuming is concerned, her costume, Maud Allen Salome costume, has plays a critical role in the development in the history of our belly dance costuming. So her costume is actually more important to belly dancers than her dance was, if, if you mm-hmm. get the difference. So while there were definitely belly dancers, people who were Turkish, Egyptian, a variety of Middle Eastern and North African cultures performing in the major cities of the world in the ethnographic restaurants and um, cultural spaces, right? You could go see a, a legit belly dancer in 1908 in New York City, right? Or you could go see Salome. And if if you compare the two dancers at that time, the costuming of Salome would look and resemble and resonate more with us as a belly dance costume mm-hmm. because it isn't a traditional costume from Egypt or Lebanon or Turkey, which is what the dancers in these ethnographic places were wearing. So, you know, the whole thesis, the whole thesis of my book is that belly dance costuming as we know it was established in the European theatrical tradition. So it comes from operatic um, iconography. So in an opera, you would have two round discs on your, on your bosoms, and that would indicate that you were an Orientalist character. And that operatic convention went into theater. And, and so if you were do, playing the role of Salome, you would have two round discs on your bosoms to indicate that you were an Orientalist figure. And then Salome had two round discs on her bosoms. And now we, as belly dancers, have very embellished bras. So our, you know, an ancestor of our modern bedla actually goes through, the history of modern bedla goes through this moment in 1908 of Salamania. And there are hundreds of dancers recorded on ephemera, postcards in newspaper clippings, um, in archives around the world that show us that the bedla set, the embellished chest covering, I'm going to call it a bra, they weren't bras then, they were proto-bras, but the chest covering, the belt, and the skirt, that formula was established by 1908 when Maud Allen took to this stage. Well, she started in 1903, so let, let me get straight on that. But in 1908 was the height of Salamania, and there were thousands of dancers worldwide wearing a costume based on this formula, a formula we still wear today. That's super cool. And so why then of all of these dancers have you chosen Maud Allen to kind of zero in on both for this talk but but as part of the wider research that you're doing? 
So, so my, my research, which has been a lot of primary, primary archival research, you know, digging through library and museum archives to find this imagery, you know, surfing the web through, you know, during, during the lockdown, I have been surfing the web, you know, so many um, institutions have opened up their collection, their digital collections. It's been fabulous for me. But the real key here is that Maud Ellen was one, the most successful Salome dancer. She was like the pinnacle. So she was the most successful. She performed the longest. So she actually toured for nearly a decade as Salome. It got to the point where she didn't want to dance Salome anymore. And, and, and she could only get booked if she did the Salome dance as part of her show. So she was stereotyped as Salome. Right. So because she had a 10 year career, she had more photo shoots. She had more promotional postcards made. You know, every couple of years she would have to update her, you know, her promotional postcards so that she would have fresh new stuff to send to the media. And the 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 result is that we have more pictures of her. We have pictures from the front, pictures from the back, pictures from the side, pictures of her bent over, twisted, dancing in different poses. We have more visual content about her. But more than that, we also have this diaries. We have her autobiography, My Life in Dancing, which she published in 1908. Again, that pivotal year of Salamania when her, um, her diary was published. It was at the height of Salamania but not the height of her career because her career kept going on and on until 1915 or so. And we have more content. We, she traveled and everywhere she traveled to, newspapers wrote articles about her, articles before she appeared, reviews after she was gone. So we have this set of um, documentation. We can trace her career and her movements around the globe through newspaper archives. So we have more information about her simply because she left more for us, because she traveled a lot. So we have lots of different viewpoints about her dance and describing her dance and costume. And more importantly, two of her costumes survive. So my talk for the bundle, I'll be talking about the importance of her costume, right, from our history. But we're also going to take a look at some photographs of her actual surviving costume pieces that's so cool yeah yeah that's so, so cool that you're able to track all this down and like put it all together in a way that that we can look at it from our belly dance lens and see mm -hmm. the influences i like thank yeah. you for doing all this work for everyone else <laughs> well, I'm, you know so just just to be clear on this it's an obsession of mine. I've been working <laughs> on this project <laughs> since the 90s. I mean, like I was in graduate school when I, I wrote a substantial paper about this. I actually published an article in the old Habibi magazine mm. um, called uh, The Birth of Bedla. So I've been working on this Birth of Bedla project for almost uh, 25 years. So um, I'm really glad to be close to publication. And if it weren't for this big lockdown, I was hoping to get the book done this year. However, those two beautiful costumes are in Canada and I can't go to Canada to, to take photographs of them yet. So when the world opens up, I'll be able to finish that chapter of my book because Maud Allen represents one of the chapters in this larger research project. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so when the world opens up, Salamania, The Birth of Bedla, I don't know what the title of the book will be yet, but it's gonna be in that 
wheelhouse. Actually, there was a play that came out uh, about four years ago called Salamania. And when it came out, I was like, oh, shucks. Oh, oh. <laughs> that was my title. It's gone. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so I'm not exactly sure what the title of my book will be, but the working title is Salamania. So Ma, you were saying Maude Allen was one of, was the most famous dancer yes. of the Salamania age. And since we have so many you know, so like now when someone is the most popular at a thing they do, they invariably are copied yes. by other people. Mm -hmm. So can we also assume that with the amount of photos and the amount of publication that she was getting of her costuming and of what she was doing, that other Salome dancers during this time were looking at her costuming to inform their costuming as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And because Maude Allen was one of the first Salome dancers, um, her costume was one of the first to be seen. Now, uh, there, there are basically three, three main, like as, I, as I've been working on the Salomania uh, project, I've divided Salome costumes into different buckets, right? So the Maude Allen bucket, the bucket that, that Maude Allen inspired is a pretty big bucket. She inspired direct imitators um, like Gertrude Hoffman, who appeared in New York. She actually built, Gertrude actually built herself as an, an exact imitation of Maude <laughs> Allen. Like in her text, it's an exact imitation. Um, Maude actually sent a cease and desist letter to Gertrude Hoffman for using her name in her advertising. In 1908, cease in and desist letters. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. And then, but then there were also, um, there were also like Malcolm Scott, who was a female burlesque style female impersonator in England, who was, who had a Maude Allen, although not, didn't use Maude Allen's name, he had a Salome act, and his costume was a, was a pretty close copy. And, um, and he, he was a well-known, you know, entertainer in the, in the, burlesque sort of um, comedy world where he would um, present fe historical females, right? So we had a, you know, a Catherine the Great and a, a Queen Elizabeth I and Salome, but his costume was a copy of uh, Maude Allen. So I'm sure Maude Allen was mentioned in his act. Unfortunately, we don't have video of that act. I would, I would pay to see that though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she inspired people, you know, from from high art to low art and everything in between and and it was easy to get a hold of her content because her images were appearing in newspapers worldwide and so you know if you you could get uh you pay two pennies and, and get a newspaper and see her costume and and make a replica if you wanted to have your own salome act and so and so they did that's awesome i can't wait to learn more about mod through your lecture in the bundle. And I want to get my hands on this book. You've, <laughs> like, you have intrigued me greatly about this period of history that I, I knew very little about. So like, you've got me, hopefully you've got the listeners too. I know everybody's probably like, oh man, I want to learn more about this. Well, it's, a, I, it's, it's been a passion project. I'm very excited to get this information out eventually. In the meantime, I look forward to giving more talks on the subject, basically making a talk for each chapter of the book. So as, you know, so by the time I'm done with all these lectures, the book will be like, oh, I saw that lecture. <laughs> I saw that. But, um, but, but in, 
in, in the fullness of time, I'm looking forward to having the book um, come out. If you are interested and intrigued about the subject, I can recommend a book that's in print right now called The Sisters of Salome by Tony Bentley. And although, so she's a, a, a journalist uh, who, so it's written in a more journalistic research way, you know, so it's, she's done her research, but it's presented in a journalistic way. It's, it's well-written and well-crafted, and it talks about four specific dancers during this era, including Maude Allen and a few others. So um, The Sisters of Salome by Tony Bentley, if you're intrigued right now and got to read more. And of course, if you're intrigued right now, I know you're going to come and take my, take, my, take my class. Come and join me for my talk. Absolutely. And we're also going to be linking up um, Maud's autobiography, which you can just read yes. online because that's part of your challenge for the 21 Days of Belly Dance is to go check that out, read a little bit about Maud Allen from her own autobiographical perspective. Yes, yes. She wrote her autobiography in 1908. So she was, she was fairly, she had only been dancing for about five years when she wrote that book and she, she had a much longer career. Um, but I just want fair warning to everybody when, if you read that book, and then you come to my lecture, you will be shocked because she has so heavily edited her life. And I'm going to reveal the secrets of Maud Allen's life in my talk. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful contrast because she had truly a remarkable set of uh, incidences that happened in her life that shaped the direction of her career. I'm not going to give it away now. No, you of course come not. To the talk, but they're not in her autobiography. So as you read her autobiography, just remember people edit even their own and, lives and bios. Yes. And this is such a good, just like quick lesson on knowing your source and, mm -hmm. and understanding that you have to look at the perspective that people are coming from. Who's writing about who, what are their motivations? What are the, you know, what are, what's the bigger picture here going on, even when you're hearing it straight from the source themselves. Yeah, she mentions that something big happened, something big and traumatic happened, but she doesn't tell what it is. Ha ha ha. And neither are we. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, neither are we. It's the carrot. You want to come and, and find out what happened to Maude Allen? You can do the research. It's on the web. But uh, you can come, and talk, come to my talk and I'll give you details and photos and yeah, the deep, dark secrets. Because Maude... Maud basically had a pretty tumultuous life, which is why she occupies an entire chapter in my upcoming book, because she left behind such tremendous documentation, but also because she had such a tremendous life story. It's pretty, it's pretty wild, actually. That's awesome. I cannot wait to jump into this. Don, why don't you share where people can follow you on the internet so that they can, they can be ready. They can be ready okay. for when the book comes out. So, so I am doing a series right now about Salome on Facebook. So if you join me on Facebook, my name is Dawn Devine, come and follow me. Um, and you can actually scroll past into my history. I recommend looking at the image base, the image section, you know, go to my, go to my Facebook profile, look at images. There are literally hundreds of Salomania pictures up. I've been sharing this information since May. It was Salomania, May. So I started in May and I've been sharing, sharing pictures um, all through the, this summer season uh, with information about Salome, op opera, dance, ballet, everything. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I share stuff, lots of pictures of my cats. I apologize for those people who are allergic. 
But I also share. At a lot least of you're not allergic online. Yeah, yeah, you can look at all the cats you like. But I, 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 I post mostly about dance, uh, co- dance costuming there and sort of my life and adventures. So it's a little more, you know, it's pictures. It's Instagram, it's, right? So I'm Davina Divine on Instagram. It's funny because it's you've almost like flipped the script. Like most people use Facebook for the personal stuff and Instagram for like the more like dancey things, and you've got it the other way around because you like to have discussion. Yeah. around what you post I think yeah yeah and and the thing is is that okay so we're gonna step back and take a moment of analysis here do it the in 2009 when fate when I joined Facebook it was only a year or two old at that point but when I joined Facebook all and a bunch of other dancers worldwide joined Facebook we all asked our students to join Facebook too. come join Facebook join our group you'll learn about my classes you'll learn about this so since 2009 we as a community have been building a community on Facebook by the active introduction of teachers to invite students and so that is where there is an actual body of belly dancers having discussions are they always pleasant discussions? Yeah, no. Sometimes it can get cranky. <laughs> Sometimes it can get political. On my wall, I am not cranky and political. I am nerdy and and have lots of historic pictures. But I, I post that there because I know that big body of dancers exists there. Mm-hmm. Now, current dancers, like, you know, people two generations down from me, because, you know, you know, I'm old. But people who are two dance generations down from me, they might be encouraging their students to go to Instagram to follow them on Instagram. So that is why I'm on Instagram too, right? So I'm trying to keep up with the young folks. I mean, <laughs> not that old. But, you know, but the point, is, the point is, is that I've always shared history on Facebook. And so I'm continuing on. Instagram being relatively new to me. <laughs> five years, four years, I don't know. Um, I find that Instagram, because it's so easy to put up images, I can take a picture of a flower and go, this is what I saw my daily walk. Wouldn't this make a beautiful costume? Look at this pink and green together. Mm-hmm. You know, so I it, find- it, it triggers that like fashion costuming yeah. part of your brain. So I, so I find that um, I am, you know, I, I'm sharing more daily life, you know, hey, here's a face mask I made out of a suit. Look at that click. And that's going on to Instagram. So I find that I don't have to think as much when I post on Instagram. You know what I mean? It's yes. a different, it's a different immediacy. And so, yeah, so I, I guess I have flipped the script. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, I guess I have. And, and how can people get on your newsletter? Cause your newsletter is also excellent. So I, I do a bi-monthly newsletter. Um, it, you know, so it doesn't come out that often and, and I like to share things from around the web. Um, but you can access that by going to my website, www.davina.us and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, if you sign up for the newsletter, you gain access to my belly dance coloring book. It's my, you know, my, gift with purchase as it were you know my newsletter is free and um i guess there's one coming out next week so um i don't know when you're going to be posting this but (laughs) there'll be one out in october and then the next one will be in early december because you know newsletters are great but i feel that um newsletters are one of those things that i like to spend some time putting together and finding great links to share with people so that the newsletter has some value not just me going You've got your own style within, yeah. within that too. That's yeah. what I love about you is you take everything and you make it 
your own. Like you have a purpose, <laughs> like, no, but seriously, like you have a purpose behind everything that you do. You're not just out here like willy nilly doing things because you think you should, or you have to, or you want, like you've got, when you decide to do something, like you're like, this is how I'm going to do it. Well, that's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, I'm, I'm not up with the cool kids in marketing, but at the same time, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that when you're surfing the web and you find somebody who's genuine, who speaks to your heart and speaks to your mind, you follow the people you like and love. Absolutely. And so I may not have the most potent mailing list. I may not have the biggest or the, the most frequent, but I have a huge, tremendous open rate. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I mean, oh, my open rate's really big. You want to see how big it is? <laughs> I have a really big one. Sorry. Sorry. It was horrible. Sorry. No. But anyway, so, but that's my, that the, the point is, is that, you know, um, you try, you have to try and know who you are and who your readers are. And my nerdy readers would prefer a juicy newsletter than, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be baking bread on Tuesday. Want to come to my class? You know, I mean, I just, I'm not that person. <laughs> and that's, so if you're resonating with this, people <laughs> listening, you know where to go. We've got the links for you. Don, I have one final question for you to end this okay. on a humorous note. Okay. Where is the strangest place that you have ever danced? <laughs> in costume or in regular clothes? Either one. I'll take both. Okay. So so, so in, in costume, the weirdest place I've ever danced was in a talent contest on a cruise ship. So I mean, nice. I, that's pretty weird. Um, but yeah, I always, I always sort of, <laughs> I love to go on cruises and I always take like a, a hip sash with me just in case I have the opportunity to be in a talent contest. So because, I, love, yeah. I love that. My next question was going to be, did you bring a costume on your no, cruise? No, just a, just a hip sash because, you know, there's always, <laughs> depending on the cruise line, you know, everything's dependent on things, but you know, a hip sash is light and cheap and that's all you really need when you're a belly dancer is, Absolutely. you know, uh, is a hip sash. And um, yeah, I can shimmy for, you know, 15, 20 minutes if I'm really inspired. And so, yeah. Yeah. And then I wear it to the disco for the next three days and teach belly dance lessons for free. You know, that's the way that works on a cruise ship. Cause that's, you're, <laughs> you intrigued everybody with your yeah, talent. Exactly. Show they yeah, have to, yeah. they have to come after you after that. But uh, the strangest place that I've ever danced, not in costume, right. Was on the back of a pickup truck at a rodeo. And, uh, and so I got spotted by somebody who was like, Oh my God, are you Davina? And I was like, okay, come over here and dance for my friends. I'm like, what? Okay, here, we're, we're going to put some music on for you. And I'm like, I'm wearing jeans and a plaid shirt, which is my usual uniform. Just, you know, I didn't dress up for the rodeo. So you just fit in. I just, yeah, just, yeah. So that was the weirdest place wearing boots, jeans, plaid shirt. Mm -hmm. probably very hot by the time you were done well i took the plaid shirt off and tied it around my butt so everybody got to see a, a t-shirt underneath and who knows i can't even remember what the t-shirt said but i'm sure it said something snarky or <laughs> something about coffee or something about comic-con or something about you know nerdy anyways i was wearing a t-shirt with some commentary on across here plaid shirt around my butt you know you know boots and jeans and yeah so I did a belly dance on the back of a truck to people clapping and hooting and hollering and I was like yay and I made some money just saying tips were good that day because I guilt tripped them nice I dance where's the cash come on that's dollar right. dollar gotta see the yes yeah, so. no one's gonna talk about your business but you 
Yeah. So you got to ask for it. So that, that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I would never do that again now. So, (laughs) so, you know, it's like, that was good, but thank you for asking. Yeah. Awesome. Don. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for being part of the bundle again this year. I am very, very excited to learn more about mod, to be mad about mod in, in this uh, lecture of yours. And I'm hoping that, that we open up soon so that you can get this book done. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to go to Toronto, Canada. Toronto, Canada, <laughs> or bust. Yes, I'm coming. Um, I'm coming to you, Toronto. Yes. Anyways, thank you so much for inviting me to join the bundle again. I really, it feels good to be invited to anything right now, right? But thank you so much, and um, I look forward to working with you and the my my other fellow dance heroes my colleagues my friends in dance are participating and um, i'm sure purchasing the bundle as well so you know i want to just shout out to everybody who's listening thank you for your continued support of my research and of the bundle project it, we keep our own arts alive by supporting our artists and researchers like me so thank you so much Same. Thanks, guys. This has been amazing. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye. I love learning about history and these amazing figures like Maude Allen, who led such interesting lives. If costuming is a passion of yours, I definitely suggest you check out Dawn and her other works as well. As we grow in our dance and our practice, I think we each find these areas that we become so intrigued by. For Dawn right now, that's Salamania and the role that Maud Allen played. But what is it right now that's intriguing you? What is encouraging you to pursue and study more aspects of this dance? I encourage you to broaden the way you look at your practice, to include research into whatever that subject may be. Grab a book or two, find some well-researched articles, ask people that you know who might have more knowledge about that subject than you to see if you can set up a private lesson or any other way to glean that knowledge from them. And anytime that you don't feel like dancing, right, switch your practice over to study and research. It is an excellent way to still stay engaged with the dance, even if that day you don't feel like dancing or if you sustained an injury that doesn't allow you to practice in the way that you wish you could. There is so much to learn in this dance and we haven't even scratched the surface. Hopefully you'll join us for this year's lecture bundle where we'll be diving into subjects that range from Maud Allen to social medias for dancers to the globalization of Egyptian dance, allyship, and so much more. If you're interested in learning more about Maud, I highly suggest checking out her autobiography. It's available for free through Google Books, and we've put the link in the show notes at thebellydancebundle.com slash 39. So go read a little this weekend and see what you can learn as part of your practice. Music